Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first day of the rest of your life. My name is Mike Zaremba, and I'm your co-host today for this Vancouver Real podcast, and joining me is my brother, Andy. We can't do a cut, so I'm just going to manually turn the camera with our high technology we have going on. Hi, everybody. Nice to be here, and I'm really, really excited for today's episode. We've got some very special guests in the house, which you're going to hear about shortly. Yeah, it's a Sunday episode. We barely ever do it on Sundays, but when you have a special circumstance such mm-hmm. as this, you make it happen, and that's what you Absolutely. do even when it's Sunday fun days. So, um, but as per usual, we're podcasting here at a float house at 70 West Cordova Street in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Floathouse.ca is our website, and um, we're going to talk a lot about floating today. It's a very special episode of Vancouver Real. Obviously, um, Vancouver Real is a podcast that is produced out of a float center, and uh, we have two very, very special guests with us today. Um, some of the, well, Dr. Justin Feinstein, who uh, I'll, I'll do a little intro on, is um, probably the, one of the lead flotation researchers currently active in this field. And um, to have him in studio, we've been trying to do this podcast for a long time, maybe do, through Skype. But then, you know, you kind of kept peppering in that I might be coming to Vancouver sometime. So I want to get up there and, and boom, you, you, you made it happen. So thank you, first of all, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Excited to be here. And so Justin is a clinical neuropsychologist. Um, he's a, got a PhD, and he's the director of the uh, LIBOR Float Clinic and Research Center. And LIBOR stands for the Laureate Institute of Brain Research, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, he's been uh, the lead researcher um, for flotation therapy, I'd say, within North America, and probably one of the leaders in the world of this, mm-hmm. and uh, working with patient populations and treating them with clinical flotation applications and, and studying all these biometrics and, and uh, psychological parameters. But... Um, yeah, welcome again. A really, really pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks. And joining us is Flux. Flux is also a researcher, a PhD student um, out of Boulder, Colorado. And you've been working with Justin Feinstein and his team uh, within this field as well. You specialize in mic- molecular biology, neuroscience, and mental health. And I heard an amazing talk from you at the Float Conference uh, this past summer in 2018. And you were just talking about the Float experience and, and how how this suppression of stress response can affect different elements of the inflammatory response and, and the whole immune system. We've got lots to dive into today, folks. So, um, But I want to kind of step back with everything and go really basic into just, well, I guess maybe your discipline of neuropsychology mm-hmm. and maybe even just starting like what is neuropsychology just to kind of set up like, well, where's your framework coming on when you're going into, say, flotation research? Yeah, you know, about six or seven years ago, I'd never heard of floating. It was totally novel to me. I was a a postdoc at Caltech trying to understand uh, brain behavior relationships. And really that's the the fundamental essence of neuropsychology is how does a certain brain area contribute to our behaviors and in the case of psychopathology, our abnormal behaviors. And for me, what's always been an area of of interest and and passion is anxiety. Hmm. And fear and how much it drives so much of our lives. Even people who aren't necessarily suffering from a full-blown disorder, it's just ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. And what are the brain areas, the neural circuits that allow anxiety to sort of cascade into these dysfunctional states? And then really what are the ways we could intervene on those circuitries within the brain to help the patients who are suffering? And so when I stumbled upon floating, it was really with that sort of goal in mind. And in many ways, uh, floating kind of found me in some ways. I I was 
in the laboratory, uh, working with, with patients, doing fMRI studies. And then one of the researchers in the laboratory had floated and tried to report to me what had happened. Hmm. And what was, was interesting in those initial conversations is she did not describe floating as a form of sensory deprivation. She actually described it as a form of sensory enhancement. She really felt connected to her inner body in a way that she'd never been before. And she found it extremely relieving of the stress and anxiety that had been permeating her life. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about, you know, floating as a tool to sort of reconnect you with your own internal body. And what we were finding in our research at the time is that in patients with anxiety, it was this connection that was most disturbed. And so... It took me about three months to build the courage to actually try my first float. And mm, wow. So you were apprehensive yourself. I was. And, Holy. and I think part of it was, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. When I thought about what floating did to the nervous system, you worry about, mm. you know, are you going to lose a sense of control? Are you uh, right. somehow going to uh, be in a position where you're stuck or trapped? And, you know, it made me actually recognize there's probably a lot of anticipatory anxiety that patients have about floating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was about 15 minutes into my first float where I think I started audibly laughing. <laughs> and, and the laughter was purely out of recognition that the experience I was having at that moment was the exact opposite of the anticipatory anxiety that right. I had going into right, it. Right, right. I remember that you said in your talk at the float conference that uh, the people that it can help the most are the ones that generally are uh, more apprehensive to use it. Absolutely. And that's exactly, you know, when we were building our clinic in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we recognized there's barriers to entry. And one of the big ones is just having an enclosure around the float tank. Uh, just the amount of claustrophobia in these patients is tremendous, and it would be such a big barrier of entry if, if they had to do that. So what we ended up creating in our laboratory is a what we call an open float pool. There's no enclosure whatsoever, but instead you build a large room around the pool that's soundproof, that's lightproof, that's temperature and humidity controlled. And by virtue of doing that, you actually don't need the enclosure. And this was a key part to even getting the patients to come into our pools and right. try out the, the therapy. Right. Yeah. And this also kind of stems into why you really made a point about let's change the name from sensory deprivation to flotation rest, That's right? right? Because again, the sensory deprivation, you know, there there might be some maybe marketing benefits to saying that in the initial goings, but it's then when people are Googling sensory deprivation, we know what comes up. That's right. And that can be extremely anxiety provoking, just looking at some of those images, right? That's exactly right. And I think, you know, patients, of course, uh, get quite worried about the word deprivation. And there's so much historical context. In fact, we were just having lunch with what I consider one of the founders of, of yeah. flotation and rest research, Peter Sudfeld. Mm -hmm. And it was really Dr. Sudfeld's um, great idea to, to, to come up with the, the acronym of rest mm -hmm. as a really replacement term for sensory deprivation. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, yeah, I think it's totally a, a valid thing to do um, because like, like he pointed out as well that like you actually can't uh, 
do sensory deprivation unless you severed. So I'm trying to f- fix this camera. Um, if you actually severed the, the, the nerve, that's, that's what right. he was saying. Yeah. He's like, that's how you do sensory deprivation. So it's actually a completely inaccurate <laughs> term. Uh, and this really stems nicely into what you talk about is interoception and sensory enhancement because you totally get that interoception really ramping up, right? Yeah, to me, this is the part of floating that has not been well explored. You know, the, the, the sensory reduction aspect of floating, I think, you know, we've known about since its onset. But this enhancing aspect is so important because what's happening is for the first time you're able to feel your bodily experience, at least in the patient population that I study, completely disconnected from the severe anxiety and stress that is permeating your nervous system. And it's so important to have this juxtaposition of a relaxed physiological state Mm -hmm. in combination with feeling sensations of your heartbeat or your breath. Because these patients normally feel their heartbeat or breath under conditions of anxiety. That's the association they have. Right. And when they're floating in these pools, what we're finding in some of our early research, and and maybe we could discuss some of that, is that the patients are getting a completely new association with these internal sensations that oftentimes drive their anxiety experience. And by associating relaxation with the feeling of your heartbeat, by associating relaxation with the feeling of your breath, this is a very new formation for these patients. They're not used to this association. Right. And that's where I think it could have tremendous therapeutic value because then they could go back out into the real world and when they feel their heart beating again and when they feel their breath, for example, constricting, they could come back and realize that these sensations don't have to be aversive. They don't have to be anxiety-inducing. In fact, they could remember back to the float and realize these sensations could symbolize complete relaxation and connection with your body. Right. Yes. And, and to me, this is the part of floating that is oftentimes missed when you use words like sensory deprivation. Yeah. It's this profound connection with... The, the life functioning happening inside your body moment by moment. And it's almost in some ways a reflexive state of mindfulness without any effort whatsoever. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the key piece is that it's, it's, uh, it's exposure therapy in a really safe kind of environment of being able to be exposed to those feelings of what it's like to be anxious mm-hmm. while in a very calm and controlled state of state of mind right because like the sensory reduction calms the central nervous system down maximally and then the, the patient uh, or the user uh, remains uh, conscious during this experience that's where they like wow, i didn't know i could feel this way yeah, right that's right so uh, yeah and then that i assume that's where that new association comes really into play it's like, like oh my gosh like how, i didn't know i could feel like this you know that's one, right. one question i had about the exposure therapy aspect was the idea that you know when people are treating anxiety disorders they'll actually like expose them to the thing they're afraid of and you're looking tackling it from that angle of like well the responses are anxiety provoking so let's sort of lack of a better way of saying it, reprogram their relationship to those mm-hmm. responses. That's exactly right. Yeah, right. That's a great way of saying it. <laughs> cool. and, and, and in many ways, you know, you have to realize these are the sorts of patients who are exquisitely sensitive to these sensations. You know, we've had patients in our studies, for example, who in day-to-day life outside of the float pool might feel their heart flutter. Mm-hmm. And 
very rapidly run to an emergency room thinking they're dying of a heart attack. Yeah. They have these sort of catastrophic misinterpretations of these internal body sensations. Mm. And what floating seems to be allowing these patients to do, and sometimes the first uh, um, uh, time in their entire life, is actually have these internal sensations but not have the reflexive anxiety response. Right, it, right. It, it seems to be short-circuiting it. And I think what's happening and what our data is showing, at least in, in the early studies, is it's creating a completely relaxed physiological state yeah. where indi indicators like your blood pressure are going down anywhere between 10 to 20 points, your heart rate and your respiration is slowing, your brain waves are slowing. And it seems to me that you're, you've created a physiological state that is the exact opposite of anxiety. Right. So it is like the like a traditional parasympathetic response. Exactly. Right. So and, it's, and go ahead. I was going to say, you, you kind of coined this in your uh, most recent presentation at the Float Conference, um, which is available on YouTube, by the way, Float Conference 2018. And you coined it, well, you, you said the anti-anxiety effects of floating. That's right. So can you kind of like, just like summarizing in that portion of the presentation and like what what that means, having an anti-anxiety effect of, um, of floating? Absolutely. So we've done a few studies now across the disorder, uh, the many disorders of anxiety and stress. So we had patients, for example, with post-traumatic stress, uh, generalized anxiety, social anxiety, panic disorder, agoraphobia. We kind of spanned the whole spectrum. And all of these patients also, because of their condition, had comorbid depression. So these are patients who are, who are actually quite miserable. Mm. And not the sort of patients you would necessarily suspect would go out and float. They were completely naive to floating. In fact, that was part of the requirements of entry. Mm. And what we found was, out of all the various symptoms that we measured and clinical scales that we used, it was muscle tension. Right. that went down further than anything mm -hmm. while you're floating. And when you think of the panoply of different psychiatric and psychological treatments that are currently available, almost all of them are missing, I think, this fundamental aspect of muscle tension. How many people are carrying around stress in their lives via these tense musculature uh, 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 throughout the body, but especially in the, in the back and around the spinal cord. It seems to be these muscles in particular right. that, that carry stress almost unconsciously. And floating almost immediately reduces this muscle tension down to almost an absolute minimum. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was one of the early indicators of a potential mechanistic account of what may be happening when these patients are floating. Your muscle tension sort of goes down to an absolute minimum. Yeah. Now, beyond that, we, we spoke a little earlier about the physiological changes. You know, it's not just the skeletal muscles around the spinal cord that seem to be reducing in tension, but also the smooth muscles that are coating our entire vasculature. And we showed in every single patient and healthy subject we've studied so far about a 10 to 15 point drop in diastolic blood pressure. Wow. It, it, it seems to be reflexive, and, and we're starting to entertain the notion that likely what's happening is the warm water combined with the almost zero gravity conditions of this high Epsom salt concentration create a situation of vasodilation where all of that blood vasculature relaxes. 
And it doesn't seem to take any effort on the part of the user. As soon as you're in the environment, the blood pressure seems to be falling. Interesting. So that's why it, it could be a potential treatment instead of uh, medication? Or we're not quite ready to say that yet? Or is that where we're going? Well, it, it, to me, that's an empirical question. Right. You know, in our initial studies, we took a lot of patients who tried medications unsuccessfully. And, and in many ways, these patients would fall into the category of treatment resistance because they've tried several different medications, they've tried several different therapies, right. and to no avail. Yet when they floated, they found a profound anxiety reduction in a way that the medications they had tried were unable to sort of get them to. Right. And there was a, a, a delayed response too, like it would last after the float, post-float as well. Well, th this is, a, to me, a fascinating aspect of floating that most people in the world just don't comprehend. It's, it's actually almost hard for me to comprehend. Why would it be that somebody goes into this environment and just lies there doing absolutely nothing for an hour. Yeah. Why would it be that you would have any residue of that whatsoever? I could imagine during the experience that, yes, you would feel relaxed, you would feel in this uh, very sort of quiescent state, but then as soon as you reemerged, you'd go back to normal. But in fact, what we're finding in our research is there is this residue, and it seems to last actually for a full day, if not longer. And we've been studying this by actually pinging patients multiple times a day for several days after their float. And we're seeing anxiety-reducing effects that go well into the next day. Wow. And when you compare this to, say, the typical anti-anxiety medication, which is a benzodiazepine, most of those drugs typically last anywhere from four to eight hours. And in our studies, at least uh, the data is showing so far, the effects of floating seem to last anywhere from 20 to 24 hours. Nice. So we're, we're having an anti-anxiety effect that goes way beyond the experience itself. That's fascinating. Absolutely. I, I got a theory. Yeah. I got a theory. You have a theory? What's yeah. your theory? So my theory is, and, and it's not very articulate, but it's something <laughs> along the lines of how much time it takes for the physiological cascade of reactions to happen. Because, like, you know, the beginning, once you get into a float tank, it's not like, boom, you're relaxed. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a process that deepens and deepens and deepens, for lack of a better term. But that's where it, that it feels like. And during that course of the hour or 90 minutes, it just it's it takes time for that process, that cascading to occur. And then on the when you come out, I believe it's a, an opposite kind of thing. It's like, you can't just go from zero to a hundred. It's like a, 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 you know, before you start to feel normalized again, that twenty-hour period. Let's say it's kind of like, well, the engine's got to rev up and warm up and turn on. So the, just that visualization of, uh, you know, it takes time for it to, to relax, and it's going to take time for it to tap up again. But we know the stress response can get turned on like that. Though. Yeah, true. Right? That's so, true too. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's. I, I think what's really interesting about this is that you can induce this state within fifteen minutes and have it last for another hour, but the fact that it does keep going right. for hours and hours and hours following a float is, is just kind of what's really incredible. Yeah. Well, right. the one one thing that I thought was really interesting as well, uh, not only the delayed, um, the sorry, not, not the delayed, but the uh, the continuation of the relaxation experience post float, but also I liked how it wasn't just reducing uh, negative feelings or, or affect in people; it was actually increasing uh, positive feelings of well being. 
like Michael Paul in his book said with the psychedelic research as well. He's like, it's not for like just the the sick. It's actually for the betterment of well people as well. And I feel like that sort of parlays nicely into that aspect where you have all these positive emotions that come up after the float experience as well. Yeah, you know, to me the the fascinating aspect of this is a lot of these patients did take benzodiazepines. Mm. And benzodiazepines do work. There's no doubt that in the short term they will reduce your anxiety. But when you ask the patients to compare, what is your anxiety reduction like with floating versus, say, your typical benzo? It was very clear uh, the patients all said, listen, I was able to get the same type of anxiety reduction, but with a benzo I feel zombified. Mm -hmm. I feel tired. I feel lethargic. My mind isn't functioning quite normal anymore. Mm. Whereas when I would come out of the float, I would feel energized. I would feel clear-minded and clear-headed. They said it's completely different in terms of the side effects. And well, there's no contraindications, really. I, unless there are, are some that I'm unaware of, but it, I, I imagine it would be minimized in a float tank. We, we were really concerned about you know, potential adverse effects. You know, the studies we published last year were some of the first studies in this patient population. Mm. and We were worried about potential adverse effects. Mm. I, in fact, I, I personally monitored every single float session uh, through the intercom system we developed. Yet, I waited patiently for something to go wrong, and nothing went wrong in any of the patients that we've studied so far, and we're now getting into the hundreds. So I'm not saying it's completely safe yet. You know, we're going to have to right. study thousands and thousands yeah. of patients before we could ever make that claim. Right. But at least in the initial research, we haven't seen any adverse events. And one thing I can tell you is these medications have a tremendous number of adverse effects. And for benzos, the biggest one is they're highly addictive. Yeah. Even more so than, say, the opiate crisis that we're having. Yeah. And oftentimes, we're finding in the case of the overdoses in America, mm -hmm. it's a combination of benzos with the opiates mm. and to me this is this is a scourge on society yeah and we're just starting to see this happening now in fact where i live oklahoma we're having uh the first lawsuit to be brought up against uh this basically uh purdue pharmaceuticals which makes oxycontin right and that's wow. that's going to happen in may and this is going to be the first test case of actually suing big pharma for all the horrible side effects that have come from these medications at a population level. Can I, wow. can I ask you guys both probably, because mm -hmm. you're both in this research field of mental health as a broad spectrum or a broad, an umbrella, of like what is, from your understanding, I, I, there's a reason why you're researching this. Like, so what, how, what is the mental health situation like in North America or, or America? Like, what, are the, what kind of numbers are we talking about in terms of an epidemic here? Um, I actually have those numbers in that paper I just wrote. Let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, the, the the best statistics that we have are currently, on a global level at least, have come from the World Health Organization. In 2017, they released a report on depression and mental illness in the world. Okay. Um, and I have the actual numbers if I can find the file. Um, but it's I think it's it's over 300 million people worldwide are experience, have experienced some depressive symptoms in the past year right. is one of the one of the numbers. Yeah. The, the the big thing that also came out of that uh, WHO report was that depression is the most disabling condition in the world. Yeah, you know when you when you when you talk about disabling, we're talking about people unable to work, people unable to to form relationships, people unable to to leave their house even. Mm. 
And when you compare all the other medical uh, conditions in society, nothing is more disabling than depression. Right. And anxiety is not far behind. And in fact, what we're finding is anxiety and depression may not be separate conditions. They tend to go hand in hand. Right. That's and my next question. Like they're linked. They're, they're, they're highly linked. And yeah. what we know, at least in, in America, is about one in four people at some point in their life is going to have a full-blown anxiety or depressive disorder. One wow. in four, you said? One yeah. in four. Wow. And that's in the U.S. And I think, I think maybe I got the number wrong, but I heard like 40 million at any given time in the U.S. is experiencing uh, some sort of anxiety Disorder and the general generalized anxiety disorders. Absolutely, and you know when you look at the epidemiological statistics, and we could talk about this if you guys like. It's the younger generation, the hmm. generation that's being just completely bombarded by technological stimulation, that you see these base rates going up even higher. Right. And I've seen some recent statistics for suicide, for example, in younger generations, and they're off the charts. the The I've base rate this, is yeah. is going up well beyond we had. Uh, rates that we had ever imagined. And it's getting to the point where we're actually starting to realize that we are the guinea pig generation. Mm. We are the first generation being exposed to this 24-7 inundation of stimulation. It's so, it's so I've, much. I've got some okay. statistics. These are, uh, these are global. Um, but according to the 2015 World Health Organization survey, 322 million people are estimated to be suffering from depression in the world, which is about 4.4% of the population, at least uh, when this was released in 2017. Um, that was a, an increase that went faster than the actual increase in the population of the world. Um, hmm. And major depressive disorder is responsible for almost $100 billion worth of uh, costing that much uh, for, for people who are, are in need of care. Per year. Per year. Um, and they, it goes up to $210 billion when you include it with comorbid conditions as well. Um, wow. And then, uh, where it's, this was so uh, across the globe, depression has led to a total of 50 million years lived with disability in 2015 alone. Wow. Okay, so there's no doubt that there's a big problem here, yeah. right? Um, I had a good question about. Sorry, I interrupted no, no, I had, you there. I had, no, no, no. I had a really good question, but um, you look like you were going to say something huh? there. Okay. Um, well, I gonna, I'll jump into what yeah. I was going to go through in terms of. Well, actually, I had a question about the muscle tension element of right. it because um, when you look at, you know, say maximal sensory reduction, external sensory reduction, and and the ability to cause muscle tension, have, do you have any personal like theories or hypotheses around like how that's coming? Because like one, you know, I look at like acupuncture and massage. Mm. Well, they're 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 promoting muscle relaxation that's as right. well. But you know, how is floating doing that by you know being in this you know. Yeah, anti-gravity, temperature, like this sensory, sensory neutral kind of experience. So, I mean, again, it's, 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 that wording is not great. But you know what I mean? Like how, how do you feel like this muscle tension uh, decrease is, is being caused by floating? It, it, it's a great question. I think, you know, for me, part of what's happening is you're putting your spinal cord into such a unique and novel environment. Every single moment of the day, completely unbeknownst to us, the spinal cord is counteracting and fighting the forces of gravity. And we're just born on Earth, so we're used to that. And luckily, it's able to function quite well doing this in the background of our lives. But what we don't recognize is it does take a toll. And a lot of the time that people have 
chronic pack pain, chronic muscle tension in this region is because they're not recognizing the constant toll that this does take over time. Mm. And what, what really was remarkable is when the patients would come out of the pool, you would see this you know, person who was completely miserable pre-float, the, the sort of uh, 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 suffering that it's just vicarious. You walk into the room and you, you yourself start feeling that way. Right. And then post-float, it was as if a new person had emerged. And I didn't even have to hear them talk out loud. You could see it in their body posture. They're sitting much more relaxed. They're much more open to the world. The, 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 the facial expressions are, are, are so much more emotive. The sound of their voice has so much more prosody. Mm. It's as if they've come to life. And you just wonder how much of this tension is just preventing them from living their full life, preventing them from being able to be at peace in that moment. Right. And so I think what's happening in the float is they'll go into it and their spinal cord for the first time isn't fighting the forces of gravity. Mm-hmm. And it just almost immediately says, okay, yeah. let's let go. Mm-hmm. And so there's really deep muscles in our body and our fascial tissue that likely are getting a chance to release in a way that in day-to-day life with the forces of gravity is just impossible. Right. And it's very different than lying, say, on a surface, lying yeah. on a bed or the floor. Like very the different. Mm-hmm. When you're li- it's a liquid, yeah. right? So it's going to contour to every millimeter of your surface area perfectly. Mm-hmm. That's right. It holds you, and, and, and every body's very unique in terms of its biomechanical structure and, you know, and our postures and skeletal structures. So the fact that it can just perfectly contour you with these precise densities that we keep as a, as a, you know, a flotation uh, provider. And, and yeah, like all the little stability muscles can just be mm-hmm. like, I don't need to work. I don't need to work. And, 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 and to me, that's the fascinating part also mm-hmm. with the performance enhancement and all the athletes that are using floating. Mm. You know, some of, some of my most favorite floats are the ones that occur after an intense workout. Mm. And it's purely because all of that muscular tension just literally dissolves into the water. Yeah. And you don't have to feel your body pulling and tugging at you. Yeah, like, I call that stacking when you do an activity right before a float. So like, like <laughs> a yoga class or a workout or something. Because you get everything moving. You get the blood pumping, the blood flowing. All the muscles can relax. Like they're, they're mobilized kind of. And like the fascia is less sticky. Then you go for a float, and it, the sensory reduction just lets your nervous system go boom, way yeah. down. And uh, it just it amplifies it all, I find. It Absolutely. kind of amplifies the effect. I just wanted to ask about what were the, the feelings of well-being that people reported That's on afterwards? Because right. you say you notice this huge change, That's this right. state change that comes out afterwards. Uh, what were they reporting on when, after post-float experience? You know, this, this is something as well that surprised me. You know, we were viewing floating as a tool for stress reduction and anxiety reduction, and certainly our data is, is supporting that. But the part that kind of took me by surprise was this, this profound positive affect that is left with the patients after the float. It wasn't like we were just taking them from, say, minus three to zero. They were left in this sort of very positive state of sort of low-grade contentedness, um, what, you, what you might call uh, serenity. And a lot of the patients described it as a serene experience. So in other words, this isn't euphoric in the sense that uh, uh, they're, they're bouncing off the walls in joy. They're, they're feeling this, this sense of relaxation in a way that they described as 
the most relaxing experience they have ever had in their life. And we actually had them compare this experience to all the different uh, uh, relaxation techniques they had tried in the past, whether it be massage or acupuncture or anti-anxiety drugs or other street drugs. They tried these patients a whole range of experiences to help reduce their anxiety. Mm. Yet, for whatever reason, they found floating to be the most relaxing experience they'd ever had. And in our sample, I could tell you, 75% of the patients reported that. And wow. I, I think one of the interesting things about that, as, as Justin kind of said, is that it, it isn't a euphoric experience it isn't to say it isn't pleasant but it's like a centering calm experience which is what people are having and a lot of you know the especially with with medications arise when you are tapping into reward circuitry and it's a drug that is like easily to easy to get addicted to whereas an experience like float is actually promoting a sense of well-being and balance as opposed to you know throwing in that euphoria it's such a unique um physiological and psychological state to be in of one of it is hypersensitivity, but you're calm. That's right. So yeah. you're not like you're, you're hyper. Like colors are literally brighter, more vivid. Yeah. Your, your vision is more acute and sharper. Your sense of touch is just a little bit more tactile, and like you know, you can just feel it. Um, but yet you're in this very steep. You're not stimulated. You're yeah. calm. I call it the post float bubble. Yeah, like I honestly yeah. feel like when I'm walking around Gastown, because Gastown's a pretty, as you can see, it's a pretty crazy place. Mm. A lot of stimulation going around here. I feel like I'm surrounded by a force field of serenity, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm walking through, I'm observing all the crazy stuff. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting, that uh, you know, police shakedown going on <laughs> over there. And I'm just kind of just going through, drifting through the world, my own little bubble of peace. And it seriously follows you for a while. And, and, and to me, this is the fascinating part with the patient populations that mm. we're studying. When you think of disorders of depression and anxiety, in some ways, you know, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but you could call these disorders of time travel because their nervous system is perpetually out of the present moment Mm -hmm. state. In the case of anxiety, you're always thinking about the future. You're always worried about the future. In the case of severe depression, you're oftentimes ruminating about the past. And when you're floating and in the post-float state that we were just talking about, you're really and firmly grounded in the present moment. And to me, that's such an important part of what the experience is doing for the nervous system. It's making it recognize that you are not in the future, you're not in the past, but in fact, your life is happening in the here and the now. Totally. That's the next thing I want to get into a little bit because you talked about how it makes that interoception happen naturally where like if you're focused in meditation, you really have to draw your attention to bodily sensations. Yet in the float tank, it's so enhanced uh, it actually makes meditation a lot easier, is that, what it sounds like. That, that's exactly right. And, yeah. you know, there's a funny story because I just presented flotation last year at the biannual Mind and Life Conference. This is a, a gathering of contemplative scientists from around the world who study things like meditation and yoga and other uh, contemplative practices. And during this uh, uh, meeting, I actually got into a bit of an argument with a very famous mindfulness researcher named John Kabat-Zinn. <laughs> and it was an argument. Was it heated? It, it, <laughs> it, it got a little bit heated, but it was really about the point you just made. Right. And, and in fact, the way it began was like this. And, and, and Dr. Kabat-Zinn has been doing a tremendous job of studying mindfulness and developing mindfulness-based interventions yeah. for stress. And he's really sort of the, the foundational researcher to bring mindfulness, I would say, to the West and to research. 
and Western medicine. And he, he asked me, he goes, why is it that after many decades of mindfulness research, meditation and mindfulness isn't being taught at every single hospital, at every single medical uh, practice? We know that this has so much benefit. And my answer to him was very simple. I said, listen, I work with these patients. They are having a tremendous difficulty accessing this state of mindfulness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. the experiential access that's so critical to making the, the experience come true. You could re- cognitively talk about meditation and mindfulness till you're blue in the face, mm-hmm. but till you understand what true immersion in present moment awareness without judging the environment and everything around you, until you actually could to get into that state where you're just feeling, say, the sensation of your breath with nothing else penetrating consciousness but that one sensation, you're never going to fully understand what the word mindfulness means. And so what I told uh, Dr. Kabat-Zinn is I said, what patients need is they need a bridge. They need a bridge that could help them experientially access mindful states. And to me, that's what floating does, because essentially what it's doing is very naturally filtering out all of the external sensory distractions that take you away oftentimes from mindful states, especially, you know, think of somebody with severe PTSD. They hear a little sound or some light flashing in their environment, and they're right out of that mindful state. They're hypervigilant to these noises. Or even just sitting for that long. Even just sitting for this long, there's aches and pains. I remember when I would try to meditate uh, before I had ever heard of floating, half the time you're, you're counteracting the forces of gravity from sitting in that position. Your feet and your legs go completely numb. Mm-hmm. And you might you know, spend an hour meditating, and the entire hour, maybe a minute or two, you feel that immersive flow state, right? Mm-hmm. But the rest of the time, you're kind of playing this tug of war with your mind, with all these sensations around you. When you're in the float environment suddenly that's just removed naturally. You don't have to do anything. All those external sensory distractions are filtered out for you, courtesy of this well-calibrated environment. And then all of a sudden, that spotlight of attention is shown perfectly inwards, and all you feel is your breath and your heartbeat, the most basic aspects of sentience. And this is it. And so to me, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a spontaneous induction of mindfulness. The patients we were studying in our in our original research weren't able to actually meditate. And they they a lot of the patients who had tried said they were miserable at this. Mm. But yet they come out of the flow pool and they say, I think I finally get what they were talking about all those years. I would ex- I would you extrapolate know? that beyond just the, the patient population. I think, you know, I'm sure a lot of other float center owners and operators out there would attest to that. It's like lots of just you know, quote unquote normal people um, struggle with meditation absolutely struggle with mindfulness you know and like you said cognitively you can talk about it there's lots of people can write about it and like they understand it to a degree but you can't understand the orange until you taste the orange you you can talk about well and like you said the barriers to entry right like meditation like we've talked about this before has i can't remember some famous yogi or meditation teacher said this but it has a very high dropout rate because it does take a little bit of time too right you're not going to be necessarily immediately good at it and it can be at first extremely frustrating too right so it's like floating it's like 
in a, in a weird way, in a, maybe not a great way of saying it, but it's like training wheels for meditation because you're eliminating the pain. Like if I try to sit in meditation, I have such tight hips. I'm just like my hips and my knees are screaming in like 20 minutes, That's you know. Right. But in a float tank, you can just lie there for hours. You feel zero pain, but you get all those benefits of meditation and probably and then some too. Absolutely. And, and to me, this is also a part of floating that, that got missed in the early research. Yeah. It got missed completely, I think, when people referred to it as sensory deprivation. And it's this notion that if you go into, fl- into the float session with an intention to be present, to focus inward, say, on sensations of the breath, that's a very different float experience than if you just go in to take a nap, for example. Yeah. And having that intentional mindset mm. of really uh, being firmly grounded in the present moment while you're floating is going to, I think, have some therapeutic value above and beyond just going in. Well, and it's, it's also the, you know, the self, uh, self-efficacy that comes from that, of going in with uh, intention that you are going to be mindful and then having the training wheels, so to speak, on there. I mean, that, that spontaneous induction of mind Mindfulness is something that I have found and continually find incredible. You know, once for me, you know, I get into a tank and about 15 to 20 minutes later, there's just a change in the quality of my thoughts. And and it's moving me and I imagine other people in this direction of, of being able to focus on your breath, right. being able to focus on your internal sensations. Because, you know, that as we've been saying, that's something that's completely foreign to so many people with high anxiety. Totally. And, and how... how do we expect them to stick with mindfulness meditation if they can't even get to that point? And in fact, getting to that point is highly aversive. Yeah, yeah I mean, meditation alone has a pretty, you know, a very specific um, learning curve and skill set. And, and to a lesser degree, though, even just, even floating does to a, a amount. Like, you know, I'd say we usually tell people, like, you know, within the first two or three floats, that's when you're going to definitely make some sort of deeper connection experience happening on a subjective level. And, um, but most often it even happens with the first float, especially if we take a good time in terms of uh, supporting them through the introduction process, which is actually another thing, because I imagine um, part of your success with these patient populations of actually having no adverse reactions or anything like that is one, obviously the clinical flotation setting and environment, and then also how you, uh, you know, prepare them for this experience. Can you maybe chat a little bit about that and and what, what you do at the clinic? Yeah, you know, for us, we're working with patients who suffer, obviously, from anxiety, but in many ways, anxiety is a disorder of control. You're constantly wanting to control your environment to minimize the anxiety. And what was key to sort of create a a safe environment that they're willing to let go of that control is actually giving them complete control. So. For example, they could get in and out of the pool whenever they want. We never tell them they have to float for the whole hour. They could get out after five minutes if they want. As we spoke about earlier, we have the completely open pool, so there's no enclosure whatsoever. In terms of the lights, they have this beautiful blue LED light that they could leave on the entire float and just float in the blue water. Or they could shut the light off, and what we've done is we've created an infrared wave detector. So they could be anywhere in the pool, and all they have to do is lift their arm, and the wave detector will see them and turn the light on and off. So by virtue of giving them control over the lights, control when they get in and out, they could even have you know music on, for example. 
it was able to reduce some of those barriers of entry where they thought, oh boy, I'm stuck in there. I'm all by myself. I'm going to have to have the lights off. I'm going to have to be totally silent. And we, Locked me I'm in. trapped. Yeah. And what we told them is take this at your own pace. There's right. really no yeah. rush. Yeah. Um, if you want to wait till your third or fourth or fifth float before you turn the lights off, no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, in some of our earliest research, we did a comparison between the anxiety-reducing effects of those who left the light on Versus those who actually turn the light off. Mm. And we didn't see any differences. Oh, interesting. Okay. There were some improvements in mood that happened when you had the lights off Uh, that you didn't see with the lights on. But in terms of the anxiety and stress reduction, it seemed to be similar in the patients. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I do feel like there's some sort of magic in the mix of the flotation environment where that, when you had the lights off, to me, it feels like, I, I get more benefit from it personally. I mean, uh, when you float with the lights on or maybe you're relaxing at home, and there's something not quite as soothing as that. Or maybe you just don't feel as good. That's right. What, what would you speculate it is about the lights being on versus off, which actually increase those feelings of uh, well-being? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. From a neuroscience standpoint, we know that about, you know, almost a third of our cortical surface is devoted to processing and making sense of our visual world. Right. So a large portion of, our, of the posterior sector of our brain is really responsible for this part. Right. And by completely eliminating any light from entering into the brain, you've given this tissue, this large swath of cortical tissue, a chance to relax and take a break. And even, you know, this is so different than just, say, when you're sleeping. You could still see when you're sleeping, you know, outlines and shadows of things. In a proper, in a properly calibrated float environment, there shouldn't be a single photon of light stimulating the brain. And to me, that's potentially part of what's happening: is you've you've basically uh, allowed that that neural tissue a chance to not have to process anything. Mm. Yeah, and I I have my own like hypotheses about like I think that some benefits of floating are probably good no matter whether you have the lights on or off and others are good whether you without the lights and so like i floated um i floated at this place in quebec city uh it was a spa and it was just a, it was a swimming pool hmm. and you were with all these people and the lights were on and there was music playing i've heard of that place yeah, yeah. uh i forget what the name of the place was but um like i was expecting to not to be too distracted or whatever and you know after the usual amount of time that it takes, I could feel that change in my mind of going into that, like, easier-to-access mindful state. So, I, you know, that I don't know if you need the lights to be off. But, you know, and I've told this to a few other people, I think that having the lights off is the added benefit of, as, as Justin was just saying, removing the burden on a third of your brain mm-hmm. and really changing the quality. And so... I mean, we're, we're not here yet with the way that we're doing clinical research, but really diving into what the, um, you know, what the component that is, is most beneficial, depending on what you're looking for is. The, the active ingredients. Active ingredients. Yeah, that, that's part of the other part of, you know, I, every time I present floating, I try to show the, the entire brain and spinal cord, and, say, and I try to show what is being actually reduced yeah. in terms of sensory processing. 
And there's so many different aspects of floating that are reducing different forms of sensory processing. Proprioception, Mm -hmm. vestibular processing, tactile sensation, even the fact that you're not really moving or speaking. How many times in our waking life are we not fidgeting and compulsively moving? Rarely. And this is one of the few moments where you're completely awake, you're completely conscious and sentient, but yet not a single muscle of your body needs to move. And all of this neural tissue that's responsible for these different forms of sensory processing, for processing things like even movement or speech, all of that tissue gets to go into a state of quiescence. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's really hard to actually know what is the active ingredient of floating. Mm. Because should you remove any one of those, maybe you're going to be altering the effect. And it may be, you know, my own sort of uh, um, hypothesis on this, it's it's really a cumulative combination of these different uh, uh, um, uh, forms of sensory reduction that are key to sort of creating the whole experience. Right. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I had uh, I had someone after our talks uh, at APS on Friday come up to me and just started asking me, like, well, how would this be different if you went into a swimming pool? Or like, and, and we kind of went through it. And it, it, after talking for a little bit, he was just like, so what is the difference? And I'm like, well, we're still looking for the active ingredient. Right. You know, we know that there's benefits from this, and we're we're cataloging them and, and researching them. But I mean, we still don't quite know exactly what. Which piece is the most important, as Justin was alluding to? I hope you really didn't say, "Well, why can't you just float in your bathtub?" <laughs> That's <laughs> no, one well, of the that fun was ones. no. His 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 uh, his suggestion was floating in a swimming pool, and then I was like, "Well, you're not floating on your own." He's like, "Well, what if you wore like a life life jacket?" He's like, "Would that be the same?" And I was like, right. "I was like, I don't think so. It's very <laughs> very different." Yeah. Can we yeah. can we talk a little bit about what the control was in that in those experiments to, to, to you know tell people how it actually right. you did mimic something that could potentially be done at home. So we have four different control conditions we've used right. so far, and, and some have been published on and some have not. Um, the most simple control is, you know, we compared floating to a very sort of typical relaxation experience that people do all the time, which is watching TV. And in this case, it was sort of a relaxing, neutral documentary, the BBC Earth. Yep. Got rid of all the gore and the sex <laughs> scenes. It's just mostly <laughs> serene landscapes. Too much that, stimulation in the yeah, sex yeah, scenes. Yeah. <laughs> the calming British voice. And they yeah. watched that for the same amount of time as they float. And that was more or less a control to just look at what are the physiological changes that happen over the course of, say, an hour in these patients and then compare them to the physiological changes during the float. We've now moved into uh, another control condition that entails a zero-gravity chair. This is a chair that's very comfortable, quite expensive, and it's ergonomically created to take pressure off the spinal cord. And so they'll float in this chair in a dark and quiet room for the same exact amount of time as the pool condition. And this is more or less controlling for what I call the simple effects of relaxation. In other words, what could you do in the comfort of your own home if you were to lower the lights, make it nice and quiet, and find the most comfortable couch or bed that you could find and just sit there for an hour? And so that's one control that we're now using. Another that we just are starting to use, and I'm really excited about this, is is something called dry floating, which is essentially a... um, it, it, it's a it's a new uh, a tool being made by a company in Italy. I've heard of this, and it's really fascinating. It's different than a waterbed, but there's some similarities too. In a waterbed, you're typically on top, you're moving around. Mm-hmm. 
In this dry float setup, you have a very thin layer of PVC plastic, and in it you have water heated to skin temperature, the same temperature as the water in the float pools. And when you sink into this material, you almost immerse into the water, and mm. it feels as if you're floating, but you're never actually touching the water. Mm. And so here we could actually control for the effects of being in the water versus on top of the water. Right. What is the, the active ingredient there? And to me, one of the fascinating parts of the dry float experience is it does have some relaxation effects. Right. But the one thing that it does not have is the complete loss of your body. Mm -hmm. Because remember, in a float environment, you calibrate the temperature of the water to be the same as the temperature of the skin. And you, temp you, you, you cal calibrate the temperature of the air also to match the skin. And so you, you almost immerse with your external environment and lose touch with where your body begins and where it ends. Whereas in this dry float, you could always feel the perimeter of where your body is touching the surface of this mattress. Right. And so I think, you know, that could be an important difference that we're now going to study of, you know, how is this relaxing versus, say, a, a true pool float? And what are the differences in terms of the patient population? Interesting. I wonder what, what sort of degree of change you'll see in state anxiety like from the various controls, right? Because I feel like the closer you go to a, like a, a typical flotation environment um, in that dark floating room where, where you're dry, yeah. uh, it's going to get closer, in theory, to a, a flotation tanking environment, right? It, Are you it, speculating that? or I, I think it's going to be somewhere in between the zero-gravity chair and a true wet float. That's my right. own prediction. But one thing to keep in mind is we don't know yet yep. if you could even enact the physiological changes that you have in the pool in these other conditions. In, in some of our early work, for example, with the zero-gravity chair, you could try as hard as you want to drop your blood pressure by 10 to 20 points. But what we're finding is, even with all that effort, the most your blood pressure will drop is typically about five points. Right. So, you know, there is so a there limit is, yeah. to what these environments can do in terms of inducing relaxation. Right. And I think that in some ways that's where we're going to see the active ingredients of floating. By using these various control conditions and trying to really understand how, when you subtract out this or that component, do you still have some sort of effect left? And that's really, uh, in, in some ways, how to dismantle this. Right. We're running well, out of time, but I want to kind of make sure we get to a couple few topics before okay. we get okay, going. Because sure. you guys got to get to your floats. Um, and Flux, my, one area that I want you to, to speak to, yeah. um, and I'm not sure where it's at in terms of research or if it's still kind of in preliminary effects, but you were speaking about floating potentially supporting um, the immune response and inflammation. Can you guys kind of give us a, an overview of that briefly and then like what's your thinking could happen there? Yeah, you know, it kind of, uh, it goes to this idea that um, a lot of mental health disorders are not just disorders of brain circuitry, but also disequilibrium of different body systems. And um, I think Justin was, was speaking to this before, is that like, you know, depression is a lot of different things. Anxiety is a lot of different things. Um, and, you know, we have the DSM to help us to categorize everything um, very much based off of symptoms, but it's not based off of etiology. And so one of the really interesting directions that mental health has been taking lately is kind of looking at things from a whole body standpoint. Um, and the immune system can actually play a huge role in uh, inducing anxiety and depression. Um, and the reason for that historically is that, you know, as mammals, especially, um, 
being under stress was usually associated with some type of, uh, you know, injury and sickness. And so we evolved in a way that it makes sense for when we're stressed to have our immune system basically primed to be ready for that injury that's coming. Um, but since, you know, we don't live with saber-toothed tigers anymore and I don't have to go hunting them, uh, usually when I get stressed out now, it's because of a psychosocial reason, you know, uh, and uh, like getting cold feet before speaking on a podcast or something. Sure. Uh, and so it, it, what happens is that this still leads to an elevation of the inflammatory system. Mm. Um, and in certain people, then that goes kind of a step forward and dysregulates like the entire brain, like mind to inflammation axis. Um, and we see this a lot with uh, individuals who've gone through childhood adversity um, so as you're developing, if you experience incredibly severe stress, uh, like abuse or violence or, um, you know, a, lo- a, lot of, uh, a lot of issues that happen in, in populations that are lower in socioeconomic status as well, just incredibly strong pressures, um, it can kind of habituate uh, the body to a constant stressed out state. Mm. And when that happens, especially when it happens in childhood, you grow up into an adult whose stress system or, or whose body is now um, less, less susceptible to stress signals. You become desensitized. Mm. And because you're less sensitive to stress signals, the entire system that regulates the immune system gets thrown out of whack. And it leads to elevated inflammation. Mm. Uh, And so these elevated levels of inflammation um, in adults uh, can be turned into very serious physical illnesses like uh, autoimmunity, cardiovascular problems, and it can also affect anxiety and depression. Um, And the reason why that's kind of connected is that, like, historically, if you were injured or infected with something, um, the symptoms of anxiety and depression were incredibly evolutionarily adaptive. Right, so withdrawal from you know your friends and society was in one way uh, potentially a way to stop the spread of infection for a social species. Mm-hmm. Um, decreased motivation and anhedonia stopped uh, stopped animals and early humans and us now from engaging with the world, so that you could save that energy to heal. Um, and you know you can just go through the list of the majority of depression and anxiety symptoms all have adaptive reasons hmm. in different contexts. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so um, I joined this project coming from that that angle. You know, I have, I have a, my undergraduate degrees in biotechnology. I have a master's in neuroscience. And so I have this very interested, uh, my perspective is very much grounded in molecular biology and understanding how that affects the brain. Uh, and the immune system is, is a wonderful model system for that. And I joined um, the FLOAT project uh, to do some statistical analysis on uh, some immune markers that we got from a pilot study and then continued on through um, this most recent study. So uh, what's interesting is that um, we didn't find a lot uh, in terms of a single float affecting the immune system directly, uh, which, you know, looking back isn't as unexpected. Um, you know, finding changes in the immune markers that we were using is often pretty hard and you need some drastic changes to really identify them. Mm. Um, and often they're, they're more seen at a, you know, cross-sectional population level. Um, you know, as in if you have a high, uh, if you, if you had a childhood high in adversity, you might have elevated inflammatory markers as opposed to someone who did not, but actually seeing changes in a single intervention, you know, we kind of learned we didn't see that much. Um, we did do some exploratory analyses and found that in individuals that were higher in anxiety sensitivity, they did 
decrease in at least one pro-inflammatory marker that we measured. Mm. Um, you know, it, it was probably, you know, we weren't quite powered enough to really say that with a lot of conviction, but it gave us the idea of how to approach kind of the next stage of the research. Right. Cause yeah. like as, as flow center operators, like, you know, we've had this kind of generic, uh, ideas throwing about how stress re- suppresses yeah. the immune response. Yep. Right. So obviously if you're chronically stressed and your immune response is, you know, chronically out of whack. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully coming more into regulation with your, you know, stress management, that this would improve immune function sort of thing. And that's kind of like the blanket generalized scope that we have. And, and, and so I'm curious, as, do you see a, a connection there or is it still very yet to, yeah, it's not clear yet? Yeah, no, it's not clear. I'd say if, if I was going to hypothesize based off of what we have now and also based off of um, some other data that I have on myself and floating, uh, uh, when I've kind of noticed a, a more of a regulation of the immune response, you know, right. I, I think that there might be a process going on that, that might be leading to decreased immunoreactivity. That's what we're going to be testing. Um, I also think that one of the direct paths to this is just the decrease in anxiety and stress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're in a system that's hypersensitive to anxiety, um, that might actually be, in some people, a hypersensitive immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, because basically, you get stressed out, the anxiety, you know, you you see it, it happens, and then it sends signals through the sympathetic nervous system, the release of epinephrine and norepinephrine. And then if the immune signals or the immune cells are highly um, reactive to those chemical messengers from you know the stress system, then they can release more immune markers that then you know create a feedback loop and accentuate the actual anxiety. So hmm. uh, yeah, but again, we don't really know exactly what's happening yet. Yeah. No, I think that's important that because we... As uh, you know, as someone that provides a service, we want to make sure that we're saying things that are that are accurate. accurate. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like it's so super important because I hear you've heard it before, and different people have spelled out things that you know we shouldn't be saying yet. You know, because we want to be very accurate with this because there is tremendous patient population potential. But until we have the work that you all are doing, more come publication, publicized, and all that stuff, then you know we have to be. Yeah, I think it's important as yeah. folks and our owners to be aware of that kind of stuff. Um, I guess we'll probably just do one more section. We'll do, sure, do one more section and then maybe have final words from sure. both of them. So yeah. I, I guess I was okay. I'll, I'll throw it up and you can decide which one you want to talk about because I was curious to talk about um, heart rate variability and heart variability and, and that element with floating and, and how it all connects, and then or about the theory of what's happening in regards to like reciprocal inhibition. Mm. Which one would you like to kind of tackle? To maybe I just wrap this both up? of those topics. I, know. <laughs> I, I I personally love this notion of reciprocal inhibition because I think it it nicely encapsulates why floating is having such a profound effect on these patient populations. This was a theory that was derived by a psychiatrist back in the 50s named Joseph Wolpe. It's, It's a little bit complex, but the basic idea of reciprocal inhibition is the nervous system is wired in such a way that it's physiologically impossible to be both relaxed and anxious and stressed at the same time. And so, you know, we do have these dual components of the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic branch. And it's wired in such a way to sort of make these states in some ways reciprocally inhibiting of one another. But he goes on beyond that to actually explain that if you could pair anxiety-inducing stimuli with a relaxed physiological state, the anxiety-inducing stimuli 
lose their association of anxiety. In other mm. words, they start gaining the association of relaxation. Mm, right. And this is the key element of reciprocal inhibition, this learning process of forming new associations with stimuli that normally make you very stressed and anxious. And to me, the float environment is the ideal environment to put this theory to the test yeah. because we are inducing a relaxed physiological state. And now we could play around with that. It could be, in, in some ways, it becomes like a playground because you've created sort of a pure state of homeostasis, right? And now you could actually introduce an anxiety-inducing stimulus. So as we mentioned earlier, for some patients with anxiety, just feeling their heartbeat or their breath is highly anxiety-inducing. And now suddenly, that's not aversive anymore. We had some patients, for example, with post-traumatic stress disorder come out of the float pool and say, suddenly, while they were floating, they remembered their trauma. And normally, when they would remember their trauma, they would get this huge physiological change throughout their body. What was so amazing is while they were floating, that part was missing. And as a consequence, what they said is the trauma lost its emotional energy. Suddenly, it was just a memory detached from the typical bodily response that it would normally receive. And this is the notion of reciprocal inhibition, that if you could create that relaxed physiological context, suddenly there's nothing that you could uh, uh, have to be scared of anymore. In some ways, it, it becomes the perfect physiological context from which to overcome your own fears. Amazing. You, you know, I wanted to just ask what came to mind immediately for me with that, um, with the, the work that like MAPS is doing with the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. They're letting people like relive traumatic events under this controlled environment yeah. and experiencing them from a different perspective. It sounds very similar to what you're talking about there. That's that's kind of one of the future directions about float that I'm really excited about, depending on where everything with the research goes. But it's the idea of pairing float and psychotherapy. Like I, th I think right. if if you have someone in a tank or in a room and they have a therapist and they have gone over beforehand what they want to discuss and then the person gets acclimated and then over an intercom or something, you can actually guide uh, imaginary exposure. Um, I, th I, th I have a, a feeling that that's, that's, I mean, a way that this could definitely yeah. get incorporated into psychotherapy. And, and exactly. I just had, I had one other question regarding that. Uh, so we talked about reciprocal inhibition. Um, is this is that sort of the mechanism behind, say, uh, habituation or exposure therapy? I know those two are different, but they're, they're, you're basically trying to help people get over their fears. Is that do you think that could be the mechanism behind it, or is that related? I, I think it's I think it's exactly exposure therapy. I think reciprocal inhibition kind of got a different name. I think Wolpe Wolpe had a very specific and really interesting kind of hypothesis about it, um, but I think it falls under the umbrella of exposure therapies. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Wolpe was one of the first. Um, psychiatrist to ever talk about behavioral interventions for anxiety. And he had this notion of what he called systematic desensitization, which is he would systematically expose patients to the very things that caused them to feel anxious. But he would start off very low-level anxiety and then work his way up over the course of weeks or months to things that would really make you anxious. But what he found is just by virtue of exposing people to the thoughts or the things in their environment that caused the anxiety and letting them sit there with it, but under a state of relaxation, yeah. suddenly it would 
habituate. It would lose its power, lose its fuel, if you will. And I think what happened over time is they would become desensitized to these anxiety-inducing stimuli. Right. Now, I, I know, I, I, since I have you here, I have these questions, and I don't want to cut into your float time. because no, don't really worry. Yeah, we're, we're down for whatever. But um, the other question I had around that is, and this is maybe a bit of a leap, but maybe you could fill in the gap there if this is even possible. Um, when people do have those anxiety conditions, can they train themselves to experience whatever is causing them anxiety, maybe in a float tank, and take that into the real world? Like when they feel that heart rate get jacked up, and like you said, they now associate that with the relaxation response instead of an anxiety response. In a sense, is creating that sort of, again, control, like you talked about control, maybe an internal locus of control that they can take with them into their life and help them deal with anxiety in their day-to-day lives. This, to me, is the million-dollar question. Yeah. Does the learning that takes place inside of a float pool transcend the environment? Anecdotally, I think the answer is yes. We have a lot of patients who've, who've spoken about this. I'm sure you guys have a lot of people in your own float center who've spoken about this. But it's never been systematically tested. And this is actually the clinical trial we're currently running right now through the National Institute of Health, who's funding this. And it's the first time the NIH has ever funded float research. But they want to know this answer. They want to know, can we have a patient with severe stress or severe anxiety float regularly week after week and then follow them up six weeks, six months, a year later and see if there's still some carryover effect whereby they're out in the real world, they're experiencing life, they're getting anxious again, but yet they have a new coping skill, a new strategy, a new association to those feelings of stress and anxiety that was created from this float intervention. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to test this over the next three years and by the end of this, we're going to hopefully have an answer. Wow. And I think one of the strengths that this has is that, well, potentially has, is, you know, even exposure therapy, uh, when done, you know, well, it, it basically exposes a patient to whatever is stressful or anxiety-inducing for them in as many situations and contexts as possible. You know, so you create, like, a hierarchy, as, as Justin was talking about, of, like, what's, or uh, as you were talking about, I'm sorry, of what, like, the least... You know, the, the smallest thing that might induce anxiety all the way to the top. And as you make your way all the way up to what is the most anxiety-inducing stimuli, you do it in a lot of different contexts. And and that allows it to generalize. And, and what you're doing throughout the entire procedure is you're basically creating new associations in as many different contexts as you can to help a person with severe anxiety, you know, go through their daily life. And, you know... We don't know exactly how much flow generalizes yet. That's that's what this this you know this uh, clinical trial is about. So, is there any research at all, or to your knowledge, about uh, just just mindfulness and meditation on that? Because they are similar th- worlds that we're playing in here. Um, that because I mean. You know, a lot of times, mindfulness meditation, they talk about taking your practice off the mat or taking it into the real world. It's like giving them the tools to deal with these uh, stress-inducing stimuli when you get out into your real life. And we're looking at it from the flotation angle, but there isn't any research backing that up from, say, like a mindfulness meditation perspective. Yeah, yeah, I think I think what we're looking at here is a difference between content and process. So when you're exposing someone to 
a lot of different circumstances, you're kind of changing the content of their thoughts, right? Initially, the content was this is, you know, X is associated with Y and gives me anxiety. And, you know, now what you're doing is saying like, oh, X is associated with A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, none of which give me anxiety. Whereas with mindfulness, you're noticing and allowing yourself to separate from what is causing you anxiety. Uh, from an ACT perspective, it would be referred to as diffusion. So they're not the same thing. Um, I think they might go through similar pathways, but fundamentally, I think they're slightly different. And what do you think, Justin? Well, people ask me this a lot, and I think you have to make a distinction. Floating is not mindfulness per se. You could go into float and take a, a nap. You could go into the, f- the float and bounce off the side of the pool and just enjoy being in a zero-gravity position. You could go into the float and brainstorm and imagine things beyond your wildest dreams. Or you could go into the float with the intention of present moment awareness, focused attention, say, yeah. on the breath. And that's very different, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I, I often like to, to, to make the distinction that floating is not mindfulness, but yet floating creates a perfect environment from which to practice mindfulness. Yeah. It, it, it's sort of a holding cell, if you will, from which to experience mindful states. And, training wheels. I really like that. Yeah, training analogy. wheels. And you know, one thing I could tell you is I've been – examining this literature very closely. There's been a few meta-analyses that have been published over the past few years looking at mindfulness interventions in patients with full-blown anxiety disorders. So not the average person going to take a few days of meditation and go off and see if they feel better, but people who are really suffering. And, you know, this, this was actually surprising to me, but the effect sizes are remarkably weak. Huh. You wouldn't have a priori necessarily have expected that. I thought there would be a lot bigger effects in patients with anxiety. In fact, with depression and mindfulness, the effect sizes are way bigger. Interesting. But with anxiety disorder, there seems to be something about the way the nervous system is wired that it's just not experientially accessing these mindful states. It's so pulled into the direction of future uh, 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 future moments, worries, and you're constantly ruminating about these things happening outside of the present moment right. that in some ways you, you're almost in this uh, a state that's the exact opposite of mindful present moment awareness. And so to me, this is a key area where floating may provide a bridge. One of the studies I'd like to do in the near future is actually do a study where you combine floating with mindfulness and now do you actually enhance yeah. the effects of both? I I'd imagine you affect the enhance yeah. uh, the effects of mindfulness for sure. No, I mean, because like again, just with the uh, enhanced interoception, like I mean, when that's the thing, it's like when you can really tune into those bodily sensations coming yeah. up, like that is the mindfulness practice. But I think exactly. like you have the control of like you know mindfulness seated practice or you exactly. know, dry practice, just floating without mindfulness, and then combine the two and have those three groups. I think you will see. M- It'll be different. Well, they're statistical. We'll see, right? But yeah, like, I yeah. I would love to see that. It'd be so cool. We need more researchers. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think right. that's you know one of the one of the things <laughs> right. that I'm hoping for with with my project and and what has become my dissertation is you know right. being able to if we can find immunoregulatory properties of float, yeah. I think that would bring us a bit more into the scientific literature, which would. You know, well, encourage. People. I just got an email this week from a uh, PhD student. This is UBC, interesting. Yeah. Just this week, and she's um, looking, uh, you know, perception of pain in flotation. Yeah. Um, and so she, we're going to meet with her in the next week or so because I think they want to use our facility. Sweet. Oh, fantastic! So That'd be great. We yeah. just recently upgraded. Like we've had, um, we had uh, 
nine Oasis float tanks for the longest time. And then we just um, swapped four out for four cabins. Oh, wow. So that gives you the light, gives you the voluminous perspective. Obviously, all of our floats have audio capabilities. But it really will help with that. Well, either mobility issues or the pre-float apprehension issues. Um, and it's it's been huge so far, and I think you know having that diversity is really really big. So that's great. Yeah, but anyways, but yeah, more research is, is she just emailed me this week, so I think that's very exciting that it's slowly you know. Yeah. And and one thing you know you know for me this is this is near and dear to my heart because right now we're we're the only laboratory in America really studying flotation rest, mm-hmm. and there's not very other many other laboratories even around the world right now, and so we just need a lot more researchers, and so. A website has been put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the website is, is clinicalflotation.com or clinicalfloat.com. Right. And it has a repository of all the peer-reviewed studies that have come out on clinical flotation with different patient populations and so forth. And so if you are a researcher who is interested in this, you could at least see what is the evidence base. What do we know and what do we not know? And it turns out there's a lot of things we don't know. And to me, this is the exciting part you know we're, we're just beginning to make these discoveries and over the next 5 10 15 years i think there's going to be a lot more coming out beautiful amazing is there any more final thoughts that you're itching to get out there either of you oh final thoughts uh i'm just excited for this trial to get going <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i want to dig into the data yeah very cool you know not not to stretch too far not to stretch too far because i know we don't want to make any claims that aren't real or anything like that but if you could maybe stretch, you know, what you think the limits of flotation theory be, could be for people, you know, where do you think it could go in terms of like uh, a treatment for, you know, any sort of disorders that might come to mind? It's, I think one of the biggest things and what has got me super excited about this is seeing the results in my own data. So I, um, I keep obsessive and meticulous data on myself about a hundred different variables every day and uh, like track you're like Anything. the king biohacker. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, I've been doing it for over six years now. So I have a huge amount of data on myself. And I started floating more regularly in uh, September. And um, this past summer, I was just, I'm, I'm someone who gets sick a lot. Like, I just tend to work myself really hard and then end up always getting sick. So it's usually a cycle every couple weeks of just like getting bad. And this summer, I was just completely out of whack hmm. for whatever reason. And once I started floating regularly, all of the markers that I have that are associated with my, you know, immune system, like, bottomed out. And I went from, like, constantly being sick to just having this, like, general, you know, pretty pretty low baseline stabilization. Um, stabilization. And, and that was what really made me think about immunoreactivity. And if, mm-hmm. if, if I'm not, like, a fluke, and this is actually something to find, then hopefully we'll find it in the current study. And I think, you know, float as an anti-inflammatory, if that's true, would just, would, would change a lot of things. Mm. Um, so I'm not, I'm not claiming that yet, but. But potentially the anti, anti-inflammatory response you get from it. Yeah. So if, if that exists, I think that could be incredibly powerful of a tool. To, awesome. Yeah. Justin, anything from you? You know, to me, I feel like we're living in this cultural zeitgeist unlike any moment in the history of human civilization. We are the guinea pig generation, being exposed to technology in ways that our genetics had never prepared us for. And this stimulation, I think, 
could have some negative consequences on the functioning of our nervous system. And I think we're already starting to see some of the ramifications with our basic addiction to this technology, especially the younger generation. And the nervous system needs a respite. You can't function 24-7 with pings and tweets and emails going off all the time. Don't bring Twitter into this. (laughs) (laughs) I stay away from all of that. But to me, what I think floating could provide is in many ways the ultimate form of disconnection. It could allow the nervous system to enter into a state of quiescence away from the stimulated environment. And I think in many ways, as the world quickly progresses into more and more and more technology and more and more stimulation, everybody every week is going to need this on a regular basis. That's my prediction. I don't think floating is necessarily just for the patients with severe anxiety and stress. Those are the ones who need it the most. But the average everyday worker who's just inundated with all this stimulation and stress is also going to need the same respite from reality. And to me, this is where floating, I think, offers in many ways the ultimate sort of fix for this cultural zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And to me, I, I, I would say it's perfectly timed because uh, right now we need it more than ever. Oh, yeah. That was amazingly put. Thank you for saying that. Like, we often do say, too, that like, you know, anybody in an urban environment like, who can't get out to nature, can't get away from it, can't yeah. get away from your job for whatever reason. It's like, man, floating is like the quickest way to like, decompress so that, right? Oh, yeah. That's right. Like, for something that is super relaxing, it is, ex- it is an extreme it's extreme yeah. sensory reduction. That's right. External sensory reduction. And so it is highly efficient at, uh, you know, within an hour, which you guys are going to jump in right now yes. and experience, <laughs> is you get to calm the central nervous system down, especially with a little bit of practice to a, a degree that is unobtainable and that from any other methodology that I've personally experienced because of this, this uniqueness, you know? Well, and it's that extreme that may be at the heart of this. It was something that was a theme throughout the conference uh, over the past couple of days. It's, it's the idea of, of shocking the system. And for whatever reason, across a lot of different domains, which we've discussed, you know, extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme, you know, sensory isolation, like there is something about a very sharp change from baseline and then a return. And we don't quite know exactly what that is. Right. But across a lot of domains, you see the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Amazing. Well, well that, was, that was one of my favorite podcasts we've ever done here. <laughs> yes. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for the work you're doing. I think yeah. it's amazing work. It's, and I think it's super important and like all the best. And I wanted to see you guys keep plowing through because you guys are doing awesome stuff. So. Thank, thank well, you. Thank you for having us, yeah. you guys. I'm glad to be here. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody at home. If you uh, enjoyed this episode, a like, comment, share would really help us out. Float industry, come on, let's go. Let's, let's launch <laughs> this one. And um, yeah, that's about it. Anything else for you? No. If you want to go for a float at Float House, use the promo code Vancouver Real. Get 20% off a single float. There you go. Until next time. To whatever is. To whatever is. <laughs>